don't try to motivate yourself by by should. Try to find the thing that you naturally want to do and then feed yourself the stuff that helps you do that better. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Frickman. In today's episode, I'm bringing you Rafe Kelly. He's a movement coach that took his background in parkour and developed his own art of movement he calls Evolve, Move, Play. In today's episode, we explore why you'll receive more bang for your buck, both financially and time-wise, from exercising outdoors, how to turn your exercise time into playtime, and why everyone should take a self-defense class and how to do it in ways that will make you more happy and more productive, and much, much more. Rafe is not only a thought leader in the physical movement arena, I found him to be a very down-to-earth guy, which I always appreciate. I highly recommend all his work if you're interested. I'm planning on taking his week-long course this coming August in 2016, and I'm super excited about it. You can find his links to all his different stuff, his Facebook page, his website, all that stuff, on the show note page for this episode. I made a little goof, though. During the episode, I actually, once or twice, I referenced drchrisfrickman.com slash evolve move play. So you can go there for the show notes. I think I actually said once drchrisfrickman.com slash Rafe Kelly. So I actually made both URLs point to those show notes. So you can use, you can type in either one and they'll both work. You don't need to be interested in his course to get a lot out of this episode though. Please enjoy our conversation about a vision of bringing people to a more natural, more primal way of moving. Let's get people out of the gyms and back into the real world, moving for the joy of moving, not for the shame of being overweight or the fear of suffering a heart attack. Whether you're like me and you think of us as spiritual beings having a physical experience, or you're more of a materialist like Rafe, and you think of yourself as a physical being having a mental experience... Either way, the bottom line is when you move for the joy of movement, you're going to have more happiness in your life. You'll never have to motivate yourself to work out again, and I guarantee you'll be a more whole version of yourself. Here's to you living your vibrant potential. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. I really appreciate it. My listeners, they're people that are interested and committed to health. Vibrant Potential is all about finding the deeper, truer, more natural self, whether that's, so it's all things health. So it sometimes has to do, I have conversations about fitness and about relationship health and even financial health and, or could be business health. I was watching some videos and, and I honestly don't remember where I first bumped into it. I think I'm going to try to link to one. I've never linked to a YouTube video on my show note page, but I'm going to try to link to one of them if that's okay with you on my show note page. And you have, but literally, if you're listening to this, you you can just Google Rafe Kelly. Please, if you're listening to this, when you get a chance, if you're not in front of a computer, when you get a chance, check out these videos because the ease and the grace with which you, Rafe, are are just like moving through nature. And you're doing some of like the traditional like parkour Kongs and stuff. I see you do that stuff. But like you'll do these things where you just like you put your back on a tree trunk or something and you'll like roll off of it. For me, it's inspiring to watch you somewhere I read or listened that you had grown up basically kind of like sort of in the woods 
Um, I think I read like at the end of a dirt road or something like that in the woods. And the way you talked about like grow, uh, climbing trees and, and walking up creeks and climbing on your dad's shoulders and wrestling and stuff like that. I really felt a kinship with you when I, when I read that stuff. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. I have tons of questions, but do you have anything that you want to just start off with? Well, thank you for uh, for having me on the show. It's yeah. great to, to have a chat with you. There was a little question in there about about parkour and involved move play, so I'll, I'll start yeah. with that. Uh, okay, great. I I definitely have a, a background with parkour, and you know, my YouTube channel kind of uh, has been around since I was really just a young kind of start out, starting up parkour. Just a young I, buck. <laughs> yeah, um, I have videos there from two thousand six. Um, so. You know, I, I was part of the first generation of parkour athletes in the United States, first kind of group of people to adopt parkour uh, just by seeing videos online and trying to, to do it ourselves. Um, so I, I had a background teaching gymnastics um, and kind of ended up at having a, a role as a leader in the community here locally and ending up facilitating teaching jams and then doing a lot of teaching so myself. Traditional traditional gymnastics, like... Iron yeah. cross on the rings and, and that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what they do. <laughs> uh, I certainly never reached that level. I didn't start gymnastics till I was 18, um, mm. but I ended up becoming a coach because I had a, a good way with kids. Mm, um, gotcha. So, so I was working at a gymnastics facility and could facilitate people kind of doing parkour. And, uh, and so that's kind of what led me down this road. Um, and I, I started the first parkour facility on the, on the West Coast. And then, you know, two or three years ago, basically, I left the, the, the parkour gym that I had founded in order to kind of pursue and develop Evolve Play. So there's a lot of commonalities um, within what I teach uh, in Evolve Move Play. I talk about locomotion, movement of the body just by itself. And I divide that kind of in my, in my own scheme between natural parkour, which is movement over objects, but I, uh, the natural, Th- that's system. how you define parkour. Uh, I define within my system, what I teach. Okay. One of the elements is what I would call natural parkour. So I don't tend to natural. Teach people, okay. Got it. Got yeah, it. Okay. I don't tend to teach people uh, a lot of movement in the city, but you can apply the same techniques in the city. Um, so the component that I teach is called natural parkour. And I also teach, um, movement on the ground. Um, so movement on kind of flat surfaces or which I call ground flow. Um, and then I also teach, uh, manipulation of objects, lifting, carrying, throwing, playing with interesting oh, really? okay. objects in the woods. And I teach um, roughhousing and combatives. So learning how to kind of communicate with some another person through um, through movement and touch and swinging them around and fighting and, and play fighting and, and learning how the body interacts with another human being. So those are kind of the components of the evolving play method. And one of them is, is very rooted in parkour. In a lot of ways, what I was kind of trying to do when I created Evolve Move Play was to take the, the kind of the beautiful things that I saw in parkour and the way that it created this community of very open-minded, creative movers who had a lot of amazing physical capacities, but um, kind of weren't complete athletes and make a more complete version of it and one that was more rooted in understanding how we had evolved as human beings. Uh, we didn't evolve to move on concrete. We evolved to move in the woods. And it seemed to me that when we focused on being urban athletes, we were missing out on some of the, the best ways we could kind of feed the body to be a more capable athlete in general, to be, uh, to have more longevity, to have more enjoyment. For me, being in nature is just inherently Long, more... Longevity meaning years to your life or longevity as an athlete? Longevity as an athlete. Um, okay. Yeah, I think that, you know... Um, a flat surface is is unnatural. It's it's it's, on, it's a, an artifact of human beings. There's very rarely in nature are you on something perfectly flat. So when you're running across concrete, essentially you're experiencing a more similar foot strike every time. Mm-hmm. And so how hard you hit, everything is more similar every time, which means that that running is more likely to produce an overuse injury than moving on a more diverse surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, I think when we move out into nature, we find that it's a lot easier on our body. Our bodies evolved to move in nature. And 
Um, and, and so what I found is I'm 34 now, moving from the urban parkour community to, to kind of moving much more in nature, it, it feels a lot easier on my body. Oh, absolutely. Did, have you seen the movie Tracers? No. <laughs> oh, you didn't even watch it? You're, you're like, you're, that's like how uh, into the nature thing you are, huh? Okay. Tracers, no. I, you know, the movies about parkour are always bad, pretty much. I've been around in this for a long time. I saw, um, when I was first doing parkour back in 2005, 2006, uh, we were really excited for the release of the first David Bell movie, Ben Lutres, or um, District B13, as they call it in the States. Um, and that was awesome. It was great. Like the the scenes in that are really, really fun and powerful. Um, but I don't think there's been a good one since. Okay. Okay. This is purely by happenstance, but last night I happened to turn it on. Actually, it had nothing to do with the fact that I was talking to you today, but it was, it's been in my Netflix queue for whatever reason. And probably for you, it's like, Oh, what the heck? I like, I'm, I'm jumping around on trees all day long. Like it's, it's no big deal. Um, I'm, I'm around these amazing world-class athletes sometimes and whatever. And, but for me, I, I have done some parkour, uh, in a gym and stuff, not outside. And I did grow up very much like climbing trees, jumping and running like naturally and doing tons of stuff. I, I grew up in like acres and acres and acres of woods and loved that stuff. So I, I love nature, I love all that stuff, but I definitely don't have the parkour background that you do. And I think it's really fun for people that have less experience than you do to see like some some of what these people can do. They're running around like jumping over buildings and, and you know, doing cr- these crazy things that uh, I don't recommend people do at home. They're dangerous and stuff. But what you do I don't know if you have any capoeira background or something. I mean, it just looks like you're you're just doing these like crazy, like you almost look like a monkey, man. Like <laughs> you know the, these movements. So well, it's, we are uh, monkeys. Um, I'm just yeah, yeah, I'm right. <laughs> more in tune with it than everybody else. Phylogenetically, okay, okay, cool. a human is a form of an ape, and an ape is a form of a monkey. So we're yeah, in the monkey yeah, yeah. clade. Uh, yeah, you know the way that I kind of look at it is that. Parkour was amazing. It's, it, I love parkour. I think it's great. And I think that one of the things that was really powerful about it was that it, it reimagined urban spaces as being available for play in the way that we inherently play in natural places. So mm-hmm. most kids who had an opportunity to grow up in the country have memories of climbing trees, memories of jumping over rocks, memories of you know taking a big drop down onto a pile of sand. And I think that there was a lot more inhibition about doing that in the city. It's, it doesn't appeal to us as naturally as a tree. Like kids don't have the same attraction to walls um, that they do to trees. And what the parkour kids did was that basically they were able to, to take that si- same vision and suddenly see the play in the, natu- in the urban world. And, and that, I think, is incredibly powerful. I think it's been really freeing for a lot of people. Um, the interesting thing is that when you go back to the origin of parkour, you realize that it wasn't exclusively urban to begin with at all. Uh, David Bell famously, you know, in one of the interviews said that, that parkour exists from the moment the human uses his body, his limbs to overcome an obstacle, whether in the natural or in urban environment or the man-made environment. And, uh, you know, the, the other founders of Art de Plasma uh, parkour um, in one of their interviews, they said that the, the body of parkour was born in Evry, which is the suburbs, which is the urban areas that have been made famous in uh, movies like Bon Ways. But the spirit was born in Sarcelles. And Sarcelles is essentially this, this beautiful natural forest that they would go and train in a lot. So it's been part of, it was part of that discipline from the very beginning. And there's something that I was particularly attracted to because of my background having grown up in the woods. And I saw that you know, the community at large had kind of lost that focus. Mm. Um, and, and so it was something that was very interesting for me to explore, you know, the, as far as getting over obstacles, there's a lot of commonalities, right? Like you said, you see Kong vaults in my videos. Yes. I do Kong vaults in over tree branches. I do dash vaults or whatever kind of parkour specific techniques. Um, there are some things that come out of training in the woods that don't come out of training in the natural or in the urban environment as much. Um, for instance, sliding down slopes 
or mm. scrambling up slopes. Um, there's a lot more variability in kind of just running across the surfaces in the rhythm of strides and the way that you kind of move over the tops of objects. Uh, tree climbing is, is, is a totally different experience in, in kind of the way you have to orient your body. And there's not a lot of, there's not as much specific techniques that are really easy to look at. And then the every tree is different, just like every human. So you got to like make it up every time. Yeah. And then the techniques that you use are more depend. They, they tend to come out differently in different environments, right? I use, uh, I don't use speed vaults a lot, which is a common parkour technique that's used over a flat wall because most of the surfaces that I go over uh, tend to have some sort of odd shape. So I tend to go very directly straight over them, picking the place that's best to go over them um, when doing kind of linear runs. And so I end up doing Kong vaults and dash vaults and hurdles a lot because those uh, kind of give me the best opportunity to kind of go through the window that, that, uh, that works best. That nature provided. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that, you get little, uh, little variations like that. And then the biggest thing that I think that, that is interesting about nature compared to the urban environment is that frequently in the urban environment, you're sort of looking for paths that are, uh, that are interesting, right? The urban environment has been designed to make it easy for you to move without experiencing obstacles. Mm-hmm. So you have to think there's a cat leap. There's a wall run. There's a, a vault for me to do. And so you end up linking these runs together and you, you're you always sort of finding a very inefficient path in order to... Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Because, the, well, the most efficient path would be to walk down the street. Yeah, yeah, the right. stairs. Um, whereas once you go into the woods, you you actually start learning how to pick an efficient path through a very difficult and complex environment. Mm. And that's Why a very, is that valuable? Um. Well, if you think about being able to apply the skill of parkour, right, you wouldn't want to necessarily just start randomly picking obstacles so that they're difficult, right? That's how you develop yourself, but that's how you develop a set of skills, whereas the ability to, to orienteer, essentially, and figure out the most efficient pathway through an, uh, through an environment, um, it's a great mental puzzle, and it's a more, more likely to, to be how you would use the skill in a useful way. Hmm. Okay. I know that you're a big believer that it's very important for kids to be able to play and move. And, you know, I think, you know, rough house is one of the words that you use. Can you say a couple words about why that's important for kids? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important for human beings, but, uh, but childhood is a really critical period, right? That's where we're developing so much of who we become. And kids are inherently driven to play more than adults. Are they inherently more driven to do that? or See, because the reason I'm asking about kids is actually because my next question is about adults. Are they inherently more driven to play or are adults just, you know, either inhibited because of social mores or are they just like tired because they've been slogging it away at their computer, at their desk where they've been, you know, they've had their their glutes stretched and their hip flexors uh, tightened in a shortened position for eight, nine, ten hours or whatever. And they're just, you know, it hurts for them to move now. Or or is it just, is it actually natural that someone who's 30 or 40 or 50, I mean, like, when when do you think, Rafe, that humans are, I mean, I know what you're going to say, but when do you think they're supposed to stop moving? I mean... <laughs> well, I don't think we're ever supposed to stop moving. I don't think we're ever supposed to stop playing. But there is a difference between children and adults. If you, you know, I, I'm very interested in ecological research, research on the mm. behavior of animals. And if you look at that research, you see that essentially in almost all species, um, the young play more than the adults. Um, mm-hmm. In the wild, obviously, a, an adult animal has to provide for itself. It has to to to, to catch food or, or you know whatever it is. So there's less time available for adults to play, but they tend to also adult animals do play. They do play um, when they're well fed and they're rested. They will Mm -hmm. engage in play, Mm. but it's less variable. It's less kind of um, all over the place compared to, to children's play. And they, they rest a lot more like they'll just sleep because their bodies need it. Uh, and I think to some degree that's that's true of adult human beings too that we you're 
the, the amount of play that you need as, a, as an adult human isn't the same as what a kid needs because a kid literally needs to be playing almost the entire day. Um, so it's a critical period in the development. And play, play fulfills an enormous amount of roles. So every species essentially plays in ways that are specific to that species. So puppies um, like to play games of chase and tag and to pull and tear things with their teeth and to rip things apart because that's how wolves catch their prey. Kittens stalk and pounce and wrestle and bite because that's how cats catch their prey. Um, so, you know, you can go across any species and find that, you know, horses love to play game, play a lot where they're kicking their legs up behind them because that's how they avoid predators. Um, antelopes love to spring high in the air. This is a way that, that antelopes signal that they are fit and not something that a, that a big cat should chase. So these games that, that, that kids play there, there's, a, there's an element of essentially preparing the physical skills that have always been necessary in that, in that species. Um, essentially exploring their world, their environment, and also exploring their internal environment, in, in, in essence, like their body, their capability, to, and, and how that interacts with their environment. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this element of exploring um, the skills that are honing the skills that are going to be necessary for them to survive. But it, it ends up being even much more than that. Um, it's it's how they socialize themselves. It's how they learn um, really their own bodies. Right. You just talked about essentially like the motor maps of your body. How what is this thing that your mind is living in? How do you develop a strong connection to it? You do it through play and play has all these creative elements, all of this aspect of, of exploration because it's feeding good information to your nervous system about what the tissues can do and what the pathways are. Um, there's an, an enormous amount of negotiation in play. There's an enormous amount of, um, of role reversal, of emotional regulation, and all of these things are, are really critical to be able to fulfill the role of, of being a social animal, of finding a mate, of doing all these things. So when we look at what's happening with our kids right now, essentially we are in, in some bizarre way, we're, we're intentionally under-socializing our children mm. so that they're going to be less competent and less happy human beings. Yeah, sit in that chair and listen to this lecture about geography and yeah if you if you look at what happens to a dog that is prevented from playing with other dogs as it's growing up you get a dog that's anxious that's depressed that um has very rote repetitive behaviors and then you look at a society like ours which is becoming more and more devoted to getting kids to have strict academic regimens early and earlier so now two-year-olds are supposed to have classes in, in, uh, in their daycare. And then once they get into school, there's no recess, there's no PE, no arts. It's all been cut so that they can test well on a test that doesn't ever mean anything in the long term in their life. And, and, and then when they go home from that, they have structured sports and structured lessons that their kid, uh, parents are filling out their day so that they will look good on a transcript to try and get them into Harvard. Mm -hmm. And what are we experiencing as a culture? We have the highest rates of depression and anxiety and obesity mm -hmm. that we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. We are the absolute epitome of an under-socialized animal. We're a society of people who've been denied play, and it's absolutely destructive for what a human being should be. And from that perspective, it's really important to understand why it's particularly important for children. It is absolutely important for adults. And as adults, since we're part of that culture, we need to reclaim and understand this. And we need to be the ones who pass that culture on to our children. But, um, you know, it's great if, if people are, are part of a movement culture, but if there's no vertical transmission, if they're not caring about that next generation, uh, to me, it's, it's, um, it's a dud, you know, it's not being passed mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could have, I mean, a ton of conversation about kids and development and stuff. And I, I love how you're all over like social development and all that. That is like brilliant, man. That's, I'm right with you. 
and I want I want to focus a little more on adults right now at least. So because here here's what my thing is. I I'm assuming and like tell me confirm or or tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that the people that that show up to work with you are mostly people that are already probably kind of aware of their bodies and they've they've maybe been into some kind of competitive athletics or maybe they did grow up in the woods and they whatever but I'm guessing that they're like they're already fairly committed to like some kind of health and fitness physical health kind of thing is that right or do you have more or do you have like a large contingent of people that are like Rafe oh my god help me like I've just been like in this cubicle and I I don't know I I don't know my body at all like do you have like a lot of those people or I I do have some of those people I mean I think that there's so little sort of understanding of the role of movement and the role of play that it's hard for somebody who is part of the general, who who isn't kind of deeply in engaged in the body to just look at what I, what I'm doing and be like, Oh, that makes sense. I'm, I'm there. Like most people, like when they start thinking about exercise, they're like, I need to lose weight. My doctor told me I need to exercise. My back hurts. Like, those, in, those are kind of the initial questions that get people to sort of engage with physical culture. And that's not necessarily where I'm sort of putting my message, right? So, yeah, you know, I would say the bulk of my clients are people who have done some parkour, who've done some CrossFit, who've worked with Edo Portal, who, you know, have been engaged by MoveNet, who, you know, have looked at some of this stuff and, 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 and are engaged with that. But at the same time, you know, I, I get... I had a woman come to one of my seminars who, uh, she was 67 years old and, um, she had never done anything athletic her whole life. She told me she, she had started, she had just started the paleo diet, started reading up on it, somehow came across my work and was like, I'm going to come to the seminar. Uh, she sent me a message and was like, Hey, is this going to be okay? And I said, yeah. And you know, she, the seminar is seven to eight hours long. So towards the end of it, she was a little bit fatigued and she kind of took a couple breaks, but she left with a huge beaming smile on her face and sent me a great message afterwards and uh, did some things that she totally didn't expect she was going to do. Like she was, she told me at the beginning of the seminar, I'm definitely not going to do the roughhousing stuff. I don't want to, I'm not into violence. I don't want to do have anything to do with this. Mm. And when she saw what we did, uh, she was like, well, you know, I'll try that. Mm. So we paired her with another small woman and, and she was just giggling and laughing. So, yeah, we have we have describe describe that a little bit for for us if you can, because I, I have not been to one of your seminars. I I would love to come. I'm fascinated. Um, yeah. But but here in my head, I'm imagining um, I'm imagining these little lion cubs, uh, like just kind of like rolling yeah. around on each other or something, and then like you know they like roll up on their dad's back, and the dad <laughs> you know if they do it long enough, the dad's like. You know, kind of like shoves them off or something, and like, well, you know, and then they keep playing and stuff. So that's what I'm like imagining that you're somehow facilitating. Is it anything like that? Parts of it are, yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting story to tell to try to figure out where to start with roughhousing stuff. But um, when I when I was I worked with with Erwin McCor, who's the founder of MoveNet, before he kind of developed the MoveNet concept, and then as he was developing it, and we were looking at Georgia Bear's breakdown of movement. There was walking, running, jumping, climbing, lifting, carrying, vaulting, uh, defense, and swimming. So there are 10 categories. I don't remember the exact ones. But after I left that project, I started thinking you could divide these into three kind of primary areas. You had um, locomotion, manipulation, and combat. And so I had been interested in martial arts most of my life, had trained in martial arts a lot, and I – and I always kind of wanted to do something that combined all of those. Mm. So I left Moonet, wasn't involved in that, but I still wanted to do that. And I built uh, a, a combatives course for my parkour gym. And it, it was very kind of self-defense oriented and very progressive and, you know, had a lot of concepts from Thai, um, in the sense that it had a very like uh, a very clean linear progression schema. Oh, like you've, uh, yeah. kind of like what Bruce Lee th- felt like he was doing to martial arts. It yeah, was I was, like, that was what I was trying to do. Was okay. create this very, very clear way for how we go from skill development, you know, 
when I started training martial arts, I was told that footwork was the basis of all striking. And then we'd spend all of our classes working on a strike and never working on the footwork that was the basis of it. Mm. So I went back and tried to really understand the footwork and really build that into it. But the thing was that the, the class bombed. Nobody liked it. Um, mm. And I realized that that essentially it was boring and that I had – I had kind of missed the boat on what made our other classes great. That parkour was really based on play. And that by by just taking the self-defense orientation and this technical orientation with, with the combatives work, I had really missed something important. And so I, I kind of went back and tried to go back to the play orientation and think about, think about it from a play perspective and look at the way little kids in, engage. So... From a self-defense perspective, you know, I'd worked as a bouncer for three years. I, I always thought I never want to go to the ground. I never want to be on the ground with somebody. Mm. So my whole kind of thing was how to grapple people off of me and get them out of the way so that I can hit them or run away. And so that was how I was teaching people. Um, so the kind of the development of the way that I looked at it was start with your striking and your footwork, and then you can move down to like working on the ground so that you can get back to that. Mm. The interesting thing is if you look at it from a play perspective, the orientation is completely the opposite. Mm-hmm. Kids start grappling on the ground. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, it's true that self-defense-wise, you, for most situations, you don't want to spend time on the ground. Um, but, but if you want to learn how to move well as a human being, the ground and grappling is actually a really safe way to start – getting a feel for what it's like to be combative with another human being. Yeah. And if you, if you ever like quote unquote rough house with a Gracie jujitsu practitioner, (laughs) it doesn't, does not appear as though going to the ground is a bad thing. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. If you know what you're doing on the ground, you can do quite a bit from the ground. Yeah. I've trained Brazilian jujitsu, um, for a few years. Um, the problem is if you're fighting one guy and the ground is not too dangerous, mm. it's great. Mm. You've got a mat and preferably right. and okay. But if, if, uh, if you're, if you're going to tackle somebody down or, you know, and you're going to try to put them on, on, in an arm bar and somebody else might come and stomp on your head, mm. all of a sudden it becomes very dangerous. Oh, I gotcha. Um, if you if you're trying to tackle somebody down onto a big patch of, of of rocks, yeah, right. All of a sudden, you try to throw somebody, it goes wrong. You're going head first into a sharp rock. Yeah, uh, it's not so great. So, you know, when I was in the bar working, it was like if I hit the ground, then there's all these people who could step on me. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of people with glass drinks. Yeah, if they fall, yeah, then I'm rolling around on the ground with a broken glass nearby. Yep. Um, it was, it was very high on my priority list to never kind of be close to the ground. Okay. Okay. That makes sense too. Yeah. Now this isn't to, I'm not, I'm not trying to say don't do Brazilian. Oh no, 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 no. I I love Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I think it's a great martial art. And I think that, um, many martial arts made the mistake of saying you don't want to be on the ground. Therefore don't train on the ground Mm -hmm. when you need to train on the ground so that you can avoid being there. Mm. Because when a good grappler gets a hold of you, if you don't have experience, you're going down. Yeah. But uh, that's kind of beyond the scope of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Little, little. Yeah. I, I uh, for years and years, I did uh, Taekwondo when I was like, yeah, like 18, 19, 20, into my 20s, kind of tapered off. And I've done quite a bit of Aikido and stuff and a tiny bit of jujitsu. And I mean, like your 67-year-old female client, I have never been a fighter. I'm a lover, man. I was never in a bar. I wasn't really in bars much anyways in my life. But like, I was never the guy in a bar, like starting a fight or something. Like, I don't, I just don't do that. I never was into martial arts because I wanted, oh, how do I like defend myself? Like, there's all these dangers. I have to defend myself. It was just... You know, and every once in a while, someone would be like, Taekwondo, that's like, that's not like a good way to defend yourself and stuff. These high kicks and stuff. It's like, and and that, it was like, yeah, but it feels like dancing. Like, who cares? Like, it, it feels so much. It's so fun. And in Aikido, it's like these ways that you roll. And I, I love the way that it's like you, you taking 
you're interacting with someone else's energy and redirecting it in a, in a way that's supposed to be safe and playful. And actually, if you're really master of Aikido, you're supposed to not hurt your opponent. Even if they're trying to hurt you, that's kind of an ideal, at least. It is a little, it is a tangent. To me, it's interesting that you're talking about, you call it combatives, or what I think is the word that you used. Yeah. Just so people know that it's like you you can practice those things. And I, and I think I get where you're coming from because it's like you're talking about getting to know your body, getting to know someone else, you know, and on, an, on a, a different level than what we're used to interacting with people at. It, it It's a way to feel, to be in your body and to feel good and to just interact with your surroundings and stuff. I, what, what are your thoughts there? So if we go back to that idea that the species play in specific ways. Right? Sure. Little kids want to hit and punch and bite and grapple because those are things that human beings do in fighting, right? And so you can look at the way that a little kid roughhouses as somehow a preparation for being able to fight. And that's true to some degree, but it's a it's sort of a myopic way of understanding it because it's not all that's happening there. When my uh, an 18-month-old son, right? And uh, so last night he's running and tackling me. Mm classic combatives move, right? Okay. He's learning to fight, but then I'm throwing him in the air, catching him, turning around and tickling him. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Uh, I don't think that that's a, has a martial application, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what is he learning there? Like why did, why does that such an engaging way of playing for him and, and something that, that parents have done with children all over the world for millions of years? Well, he's learning about emotional self-management, right? He's getting really, really excited when that happens. And so like a lot of times with kids, if they don't have good uh, self-management, they'll go from very happy to like crying pretty quickly in a situation like that because they're so aroused emotionally that it can switch on them very quickly. So within that play, we're actually learning to kind of recognize how to create a positive emotional state in each other, Mm. how not to overwhelm and how to, to kind of stay within the bounds that are fun. And the kids, the kids are very communicative with adults about this. They'll let you know. They'll be like, you can't hit anymore. You can't do this. <laughs> and what they're saying is that the, the way that we are playing right now is no longer feeling safe for me. Mm. And so you, there's always this sort of role negotiation within play with kids, which is a way of, of them learning to always be pushing their limits, always dealing with their fears, always growing themselves physically, but always doing it safely. So when I throw my son in the air, he's experiencing the fear of heights just enough that it's fun for him. And he'll let me know that he wants to go higher, and he'll let me know that he wants to come down. Tickling is a mild irritant, right? But it it, it expresses an emotion and helps him learn to regulate and manage his emotions. So in that that play thing, okay, some combatives are being developed, but actually a a whole lot of just human relationship management is being developed. Mm. A lot of personal self-management is developed is physiologically we are loading his tissues to make him a structurally more integrated and stronger person we're increasing the motor maps of his body we're giving him spatial awareness air awareness all those things are embedded within that little game that i'm playing with him now if we take a self-defense orientation to combatives as a concept we are going to narrow what we do right and that's okay just, I, just I like absolutely. the just like the adult lion doesn't quite like frolic and, and roll quite as much, but spends spends a little bit more time like you know whatever sprinting after the gazelle or whatever it is. It, it does the things that it needs to survive. Sure, sure. And essentially, what like self defense training is is about giving you exactly the tools that you need to do to survive. And I I absolutely believe just about everybody should take self defense course because it's a, a type of competency that a human being needs. But that's not what I wanted to do. I don't want to teach that to people. I don't feel like I'm the, you know, I work as a bouncer. I have martial arts experience. I have some kind of window into what that means, but there are better people to do that. What I think I offer is a unique perspective on how combative type movements are not just something for self-defense. They're actually nourishment for a human being in a much broader way. And by creating a, a systematic way of understanding how to build these games, 
the way that little kids negotiate games, we can give people a really powerful kind of nourishment to become stronger, more adaptable, more resilient, um, happier human beings. That's what I'm trying to do. So, so what it looks like is we take concepts from contact improv. We take concepts from capoeira. We take concepts from Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We take concepts from judo. We take concepts from Muay Thai and boxing. And we try to find basically what introduces danger and how do we find ways to negotiate that so it creates a safe zone for someone to play in where they're stretching their limits but but feeling safe, Mm. just the way the little kid does. And doing that not just in ways that orient us towards combat but orient us towards just stretching what our physical capacities are in general. So yesterday I was – or Wednesday I was sparring and training with some of my partners and part of that was kickboxing basically, right? Like we were throwing knees at each other. We were hitting each other with palm strikes on the beach. But then the other part of it was like we were, we were playing this contact improv game where we found ways to flip each other upside down and ride across each other's shoulders and throw each other up with our feet. Um, and both of those fit into this category of what I consider roughhousing. It's the same stuff that I started doing when I was a little kid with my dad and my brothers and the kids around me um, that I felt was incredibly nourishing for me and that I've seen kids just have a hunger for and that I think really we all have a hunger for as human beings. Um, I've had lots of people who come to my seminars come back and say, you know, this, this was actually really powerful for my relationship with my spouse or my, my girlfriend, my boyfriend. Um, there's a lot of power kind of in this in this realm of play that we just haven't understood. Mm. I love this conversation because in my practice, I'm someone who is essentially constantly talking about, you know, I mean, I use the, I just like sloppily use the word exercise, but I mean, you know, natural movement, whatever you want to kind of call it, um, physical movement, practice, blah, blah, blah. I'm always encouraging people to basically like, quote unquote, work out more or just like use your body more. I have one, I have like a section of patients sort of like if I, you know, if I lump people together, I have like a category of patients where they're very, very competitive, whether it's, you know, a lot of it's either like CrossFit or some kind of endurance thing. Cause like, I feel like that's like more what adults are doing these days. Like, um, there aren't as many, uh, people in their, you know, thirties, forties, fifties that are like competitive soccer players or something, you know, it's like they did it when they were kids or whatever. So it's like, you know, triathletes, runners, skiers, cyclists, crossfitters, like that kind of stuff. And they're, they have one relationship to physical movement. And I'm very happy that they just have a relationship to physical movement. So that's like, I'm like essentially happy with that. And then there's a whole other bunch of people that like, yeah, yeah, Dr. Frickman, I, I know I'm supposed to like work out. I know I'm supposed to be able to do a deep squat. I know, yeah, yeah, you told me that, like, you know. And getting them to be engaged in a way with phys- with their physical body is like, that's like a, a challenge that I'm always sort of like looking to to solve. Like, so so I guess the to try to bring it back to like, what's the question here? Um, what benefits could, could you like just distill down in a few words if this isn't too hard like what benefits are the people that are like everybody wants to be happy everybody wants you know everybody wants those things for the people that are like I don't I don't like to exercise that's where they're at now like I just don't like to exercise I don't like to move basically what do they do or what do you tell like is there some kind of encouragement, you know, for them? So I think this goes back to the problem that we started with. Of Here's kind of how I see it. We, we take children who are inherently incredibly driven to move. Mm-hmm. And we constrain them from movement mm-hmm. and tell them that moving in the ways that they enjoy are wrong and dangerous. Right. Don't climb that. You're going to get hurt. Don't rest our rough house. Someone's going to put an eye out. Don't do this yep. all the time. Yep. So what are we giving people a message about their body and its innate drives for movement? that it's wrong, that it's shameful, right? We are, we are essentially, we have an appetite for movement and that appetite for movement should be our, one of our strongest guides for what our body needs, but it's being denied from the time we're two, three, four years old. Yeah. So fast forward four decades, what do you expect? 
Exactly. So you have now a population of people who, who are unhappy and unhealthy and don't feel good. And when they try to start moving, it doesn't work very well. A big part of that, though, is that we've, we're, we've re- tried to re-engineer fitness the wrong way. Mm. Right? We, we look at the problem of, oh, hey, people are no longer able to be physically competent the way that we want them to be mm-hmm. or physically capable or look the right way or have the right VO2 max and yeah, yeah, yeah. scores, whatever it is that people have as, a, as, a, as their, their little um, window into fitness. And what we what we try to use is a stick to get people to do it. We say, "You're going to die earlier unless yeah. you do this. Yeah. You're not you're not sexy enough." So it's it's all about shame, and it's just not a very effective tool, right? People people are more likely to feel shamed about their body and want to kind of feed their emotion, their trauma by just eating some ice cream than actually doing some physical stuff hmm. because we don't, we don't have an understanding that, that play can be in that the movement is inherently enjoyable and that we can use that to get people motivated, that play is an inherent part of human beings and that by tapping into that and respecting it, we have no respect for play in our culture. Hmm. Right. We, we kill it in children. Right. You know, in adults, it's like work harder, work harder. Right. So we, we, we don't respect the thing that would inherently naturally make people healthy. And what I'm trying to do with evolving the play, that's why the name is evolving the play. We evolved to move and to be motivated to move through play. So what we need to do is replace a culture that, that tries to get people to move through body shame with a culture that engages people in play and enjoyment and gives people a window into it. And that doesn't mean there's not hard work. That doesn't mean that you don't have to have some struggle to grow. You know, play is part of an overall physical practice. Struggle meaning uh, like having some kind of intensity to your physical movement yeah, sometimes? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, play has a, there's a problem with the way that people perceive play because they see it as, as physical and uh, as frivolous. <laughs> I just made up a word. <laughs> frivolous and whimsical. Frizical. Uh, frivolous and whimsical. And, and they don't recognize that there can be a very serious way to play. As long as you're doing something for its intrinsic reward, you can kind of see it as a, as a form of play. So for instance, I, I uh, get in the, the Puget Sound every day at the end of my training. It's about 47 degrees in the water right now. So I'm doing That's this cold immersion. Very cold. Yeah. So I'm doing this cold immersion in the water every day. And it, it's certainly not like an enormously pleasurable experience. It's not like I walk up to the water like I'm going to eat a chocolate cake. Um, it, it's an intense experience, but it it just sucks me back into my body. I'm just I, yes, that's that's present. what I've been waiting for you. Some, I wanted you to say something like that. Yes. Yeah. Like. I feel like we, because our lives are so oriented towards the future and the past, um, it's very easy to get lost from the moment and, and physical yes. practice and, and not play. being, you know, what's, what's so often called as present, right? Like we, yeah, being present. we kind of like that's said a lot these days, but it's, it's very important and being, being, I mean, I love that saying that we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. Have you ever heard that one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I like that. I, and I, I, I find my experiences, that's, that's true. And, and the, the almost like the oxymoron about, about being physical for me is that as, as you're being physical, as you're being in your body, as you're being more present, you all of a sudden you're like holy cow like i can feel life in my body like a like i can feel the spirit i can feel the energy coursing through my body so it's like whoosh. i would you know the way i kind of look at it would be more like we are physical beings having a mental experience like our our whole culture is oriented towards just what's happening in the mind mm-hmm. and and projecting and being productive with the mind and so we lose touch with the body um and being present is actually being in the body and the whole nervous system lives throughout the body and so when you have that experience of profound presence of being of being really deeply in touch 
that's being deeply in touch with your body, with your physicality. Yeah, and I'm, and I would go to your spirit too. But I mean, I guess if that doesn't yeah, you can, if that you doesn't can, speak to you, that's maybe that's just a different way of looking at it. But you but, can look at it in, in both ways. Like the spirit can live within the body. I'm I'm a materialist personally, but but I think that I'm speaking to the same type of experience. Yeah, this I think experience you're right. of awe, this experience of 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 uh of being just so overwhelmed and so present in the moment is is really powerful it feels like a religious experience right when i go swim in the sound usually it's um at sunset so i get to see the sunset over the olympics and the sound is like this orange pool for me sometimes mm. and i'm sitting there in the water and there's ducks all around and often a heron flies overhead and kind of lands right kind of not too far away from me during the middle of my swim and that's nice of him yeah, it's really nice. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, a, it's a sacrament for me. Um, and I, I feel amazing afterwards. So to me, that's, that's, uh, that's nourishment. It's, it's psychological nourishment. It's biophilia. It, it's, it's a profound thing that can really make me be able to, to, to be a better husband, a better father, a better business owner better for my clients because because i can let go of things and and it's like defragging my hard drive to to use a very modern analogy (laughs) i could get rid of everything and be be the real me again Mm -hmm. okay good what i think has kind of happened a little bit here with with exercise is that there's so much of people that are that are exercising that are that are doing what's actually like bodybuilding techniques because they don't know what else to do it's like okay i'll go like do like two sets of eight of my biceps and, and stuff like, and they isolate these things and whether it's like, you know, with a little weight or a, or a, uh, a machine or whatever, there's that kind. And then the other kind that's very, very common is, um, Oh, I have to, I have to have my heart rate in this zone for this amount of time or whatever, this many times a week. Otherwise, you know, my medical doctor says I'll, I'll get, cardiovascular disease or whatever and and those numbers are basically based off of some research article where it was like you know because of the way that we that science intrinsically is we we had to like try to get rid of variables so we said okay what happens if people exercise for this long in this way what happens and so they're like trying to isolate the value that that comes from the exercise yeah i mean i think that both both bodybuilding and like traditional aerobic training they're both applying reductionism to trying to re-engineer what a human being is and does naturally yeah so natural movement is essentially like trying to use an ethological an evolutionary perspective at least my approach to it to try to understand what a human being should be right Human beings play in specific ways in every culture in the world because those things are relevant to being a fit human being and have been throughout our evolution. What is fit? What is fit? Yeah. Well, from an evolutionary perspective, it means how many uh, genes you pass on to the next population, uh, next generation. Okay. Um, Now, uh, I'm not suggesting that you go have as many babies as you can, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I think that fitness from a, from a sort of a physiological perspective then is the qualities and skills that we've always needed to, or at least the evolutionary perspective on it is the, the skills and qualities that we've always needed to kind of be able to survive and thrive so that we can then produce offspring. Mm, produce that's offspring, what, that's yeah. what matters. Um, you, you want to be a, you want to have all these things like human beings, you know, it's when we talked about roughhousing, what is it? Well, it's not just combat. It's, it's role negotiation. It's feeding your body kinesthetic feedback. It's, um, social nourishment. It's touch. It's blah, blah, blah. It's so many things. When, when you try to take exercise and make it bicep curls or try to say, take exercise and say, it's just about cardiovascular health. Um, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're doing the same thing. You're trying to take, a hugely nutritious thing and refine it down to one, one little element. And then you're missing the forest for the tree. Why is it better to work out in nature than in the gym? 
Are you familiar with the idea of nutrientism in diet? Yeah, like getting the nutrients that you need. So nutrientism is essentially nutrientism is essentially this idea that we can take a whole food and isolate the component of it that is important for health. Mm. Give people just those components. Yeah, so like take some well, take a pill health. of ascorbic acid instead of eating yeah. an orange. Exactly. Okay. So this was when we first started to 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 kind of create a reductionist um, approach to what diet was to, to researching what, what went into making a healthy human being science thought all of a sudden, Hey, we can do this better than nature. We, we know that human beings need vitamin D and vitamin C and all these things. And we know the precise amounts and we can give people those and we'll make wonder bread, which will be fortified with the exact amount of, of these things that you need. And that's going to be healthier than just doing a traditional grain thing. Or we'll make formula that will be better than um, than breast milk. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, it turns out that that the nutrient that you isolated isn't the only nutrient, mm-hmm. and that it only works in to conjunction some with others. In conjunction with all these other things, like a classic one is vitamin D. Right, right now there's been this huge drive to supplement everybody with vitamin D because. We're not healthy because we don't get enough sun exposure. We know that the sun produces vitamin D, and therefore, but sun gives you cancer, so we'll just give people vitamin D. Well, it turns out that it's actually really hard to drive someone's vitamin D in vivo by just supplementing them with vitamin D. It doesn't have the same effect as sun exposure. And sun, uh, you possibly have up to 10 nutrients in your body that um, that are synthesized by your body from exposure to the sun. And we don't understand the interaction between all those nutrients and how they affect the body. So once again, we've tried to, to isolate one, one, one tree in the forest instead of seeing the whole thing, your body sun exposure. And essentially, that's what natural movement is, is a whole food diet for the movement aspect, for your exercise. Mm. You you if you think about trail running versus running on pavement, well, on trail running, your body is experiencing far more proprioceptive demand by going up and down, by moving on a broad, diverse variety of surfaces, by being on mud, by being on rocks, by being on pebbles. Yeah, it's good um, for your muscles, good for your tendons, but it's super good for your brain. I mean, it's just more, it's good. better for everything. At the same time, the air you breathe is probably better if you're in the forest as opposed to running on city streets. Um, you're getting phytochemicals that are being released by trees that have mood-altering effects, mood-elevating effects. Um, if you're running barefoot, you're getting exposed to microflora in the soil that replenish your your microfloral system. You're, uh, you're experiencing a psychological effect from being exposed to green spaces. Um, your eyes are tracking um, a changing environment compared to, say, being on a treadmill. All of these I, things. I just are- had this funny revelation that I realized that I'm really trying to force you to tell, to give me reductionistic reasons why it's best <laughs> to not have a reductionistic <laughs> model of, of natural movement. That's funny. Um, so, I, but good job though. Those are those are a lot of like good good reasons, like good things that people could sink their teeth into if they're like, hey, I'm used to having reductionistic ideas about these things, so that it's it can be helpful, okay? So that those, are, those are some good thoughts, but um, how how do I know I'm doing it right? How, like, again, like, I, I'm not used to my body. I'm, you know, I, I know that I, like, I want some benefits. I know I want to be happier. I, you know, I want some of these benefits that we've talked about. How do I know I'm doing it right? Like, am I doing it enough? How do I know if I'm getting the, sometimes the intensity that, that I need or, you know, some of those things? What's the guide? You know, we're in a, in a to a degree, the community is in an experimental phase, right? We're trying, we're, um, Katie Bowman has this great analogy that, uh, of the, the orca whale, right? So if you, uh, or male orca whales, when their fins lengthened as kind of a secondary sexual characteristic of puberty, if they're held in captivity, the fin flops over. Oh, okay. Okay. Why does it flop over? It flops over. Um, it doesn't flop over in the wild. So why does it flop over in captivity? Well, it's like a stressed probably, out flaccid penis that 
<laughs> the reason is that they, it's a connective tissue structure, and that tissue structure is becomes strong and rigid by being placed under pressure when orcas dive deep underwater. Mm, okay. In captivity, they don't get the opportunity to dive and experience those pressures. At the same time, they tend to circle in the same direction all the time, which creates oh. an asymmetrical force, mm. which causes that uh, to fall over. Okay. Well, we live in a society where we're all the orcas with the flop fins mm. trying to look at each other and figure out how to fix it. Mm. Right? We have to go back to looking at what a wild human being looks like and lived like and then trying to sort of start building how we build this. Now, I, I look at the people who come to work with me and think of that, and I talk to them about essentially it's a rehab process. We're rehabilitating your physical structures and rehabilitating your play drive mm. to be able to do this because you have an inherent appetite for movement. Mm -hmm. But right now, for most people, their inherent appetite for Netflix and chocolate chips and Doritos is higher. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not necessarily the way it should be, but literally the play drive is atrophied. Like I have a hard time watching TV now because I could be outside watching a sunset. Mm. But when I, when I was 20, I would look at a sunset and I would be like, that's cool. I'm bored. <laughs> yeah, I need yeah, yeah. something more stimulated. It takes time to kind of reorient and start to, to, to be someone who engages and enjoys these more nutritious things mm. in the same way that like, if you're used to eating Doritos, it's hard to find what's enjoyable about broccoli. But over time, you can actually really start to to notice the flavors in broccoli, the flavors in smoked salmon, the flavors in these and these things that are actually much more complex and much more nourishing. They're just less stimulating initially. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a rehabilitation process. Um, I you know I think that the best way to do it is to work with me. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah, that's okay, man. Yeah. That there, you know, there's there's other people who I highly recommend, like Katie Bowman. Um, She's great. I have some great friends uh, down in uh, down in uh, in Australia. Um, Simon Thacker and Craig Mallet and Benny Ferguson. You know, there's a lot of great people who are doing this. Uh, ben Metter in the UK. Uh, you know, I could go on Tony Riddle. You know, there's there, there's people out there, and if you contact me and I can't work with you, then I can point you to people. Um, but if you were trying to do it on your own, if you're trying to do it on your own. Find the things that you love, the things that 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 people. Um, when I look at kind of the broader spectrum of of movement practice, the people who stay with it, the people who are fit and are healthy, are the people who generally found something that really engages their sense of play. Mm -hmm. So start your practice there. If you love jujitsu, do jujitsu. If you love snowboarding, do snowboarding. If you love and find ways to kind of. Um, to leverage off joy to get yourself to do the other things. Mm -hmm. And over time they'll become more engaging. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, Oh, there's such a big thing for me that, I mean, first I just want people to move, you know, even if you think you don't like it, but, but the people that are good at, okay, now I'm moving. It's like, Oh, I just, I would, I would so many of them, I feel like don't quite enjoy it or something like that. And I just, I think, stop doing what you're supposed to do and start doing what you love. Like, I, I happen to, you, you know, you could say it's not as natural, but I happen to love cycling. And I, I cycle with by myself and with other people and, and with my girls, uh, my daughter sometimes, but I cycle most frequently with my brother. And we've talked several times about it's so, uh, I, we feel like kids when we're cycling. It just, there's like this play thing, especially like if you're with someone else, like, you know, you can, you can kind of draft behind people and you can go really faster than you can go by yourself. And, 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 and you can, it's so You've much fun. Yes. It's so much fun. And it, it's, um, man, if you can find that in, in, in something. Yeah. It, don't try to motivate yourself by, by should. Try to find the thing that you naturally want to do and then feed yourself the stuff that helps you do that better, mm -hmm. helps you become competent at it and, and, and expand the things. Don't get stuck in your thing. Like, so great. Cycling, cycling gives you a sense of play. Awesome. You have a starting point, but find other things that engage your sense of play. You know, I, I do parkour or natural parkour, but I also practice 
uh, ground flow movements from Sistema and Capoeira and um, uh, dance. I take dance. I do martial arts. I, you know, human beings inherently play, and as children we play in a very wide way. But our culture sort of has this real desire to make us narrow in lots of ways. Like that's that's how we become successful is because of division of labor into smaller and smaller things. That's how the economy works. And we've sort of adopted that as a broad philosophy. So that you only have value because you are, are really good at one thing, right? So you're like, cycling's my thing. I have to be the best. I have to be the world champion or, or at least, you know, the fastest guy in my group. And I'm going to do a sacrifice everything. Yeah. And my back's going to hurt. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to suffer just to, just to, you know, take 10 minutes off my 20 K or whatever. More like 10 seconds usually, but yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and you know what, like it, it does, you've, you've taken something that you loved and that you enjoyed and you've turned it into your job. Yeah. Good job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of saying, Hey, this is one thing. This is one nourishment. It's like saying, you know, it's as if people are like, oh, I need to eat healthier. And they found that they enjoyed steak and they were like, well, cool. I'm going to see, you know, how many steaks I can eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Rather than saying like, hey, what goes well with steak? How do I find other things that I enjoy as much as steak? Yeah. How do I eat a broad, balanced, nutritious diet? Because if you're not getting paid to be a specialist athlete, don't. It's going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, man. I I got to wrap it up. I'm this is this is already significantly longer than I try to make these, but I just I couldn't I couldn't stop before this. So yeah. you know what I always like to ask is what's your number one health tip? Do you have a number one health tip? Walk every day in nature if possible. That's kind of my number one health tip right now. It's the biggest missing movement nutrient. Human beings are supposed to walk you know five to ten miles a day, uh, and it's. For people who are entry level into developing health practice, it's one of the most powerful ways to to start doing it. It's not very difficult, but it will make changes in your body, and it'll make you feel better. It helps you process thoughts. It helps you think. It releases endorphins. It gets your circulation moving. Um, it's it's a really powerful place to start. To start, okay, good one. All right, that's awesome, man. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, I am confident we will talk again. Uh, for the listeners, you can check out the show notes. I'll put it at drchrisfrickman.com slash evolve move play. You can also find Rafe at evolvemoveplay.com. Is there anywhere else that you want to like kind of publicize or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Um I interact with people a lot via my Facebook page, which is Rafe Kelly Movement. So Facebook.com slash Rafe Kelly Movement. Um, I also highly suggest uh, subscribing to my YouTube channel. That's where you know, all the best video is posted. We've got regular podcasts coming up with uh, with great people in the movement community. Um, I also have Twitter and Instagram. If people want to find me there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just subscribe, like, share, and uh, – you guys have a good day. Get the word out, yeah. And guys, just so you know, it's Rafe is R-A-F-E, and Kelly is two E's. It's uh, K-E-L-L-E-Y. DrChrisFrickman.com slash Rafe Kelly. Rafe, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.